We all know it can be challenging to secure your business, especially when you have limited time. The Get Cyber Resilient show brought to you by Mimecast is the perfect way to stay up to date with the latest cyber developments across Australia and New Zealand. Whether you're listening to this podcast, commuting, cycling, jogging, or walking the dog on the weekend, you'll hear real stories from IT and security leaders just like you. Don't get angry at downtime and data breaches. Get cyber resilient. I'm your host, Gregor Jeffrey, Enterprise Marketing Manager at Mimecast, and I'm joined by my co-host, Garrett O'Hara, Principal Consultant at Mimecast, but you can call him Gar. Gar, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing well, Gregor. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, going pretty well. Um, just wondering, we, every time we catch up, we seem to check out what socks each other has on because we're always wearing vendor socks. What vendor socks do you have on today? I am supporting the home team. I mean, these bad boys, the Mimecast oh, got the Mimecast uh, socks. socks on. <laughs> well, I've got the Okta socks on. They're very pretty. From our friends at Okta. <laughs> Welcome to our first episode of the Get Cyber Resilient show. Uh, today, we discuss several important security-related issues, including a cyber criminal gang uh, targeting superannuation accounts in Australia. And also, we look at deepfake AI-generated CEO voices. Wow. Sounds, sounds intriguing. We also speak with Mitch Owens, the CTO at law firm Gilbert and Tobin. Okay, this month in security. So Gar, let's dive into this Australian-based cyber criminal ring that's targeting superannuation accounts. Yeah, this was kind of an interesting one. There's a Melbourne woman. She's only 21 years old and she's up for 53 fraud offences in total. So at this stage, they're looking at 1.73 mil that she's pulled from super and stockbroking funds. Um, but they reckon that the, the scams they have under investigation, they're probably going to see something over 10 mil. So it's a pretty significant uh, amount of money that she's managed to, to get. Gee. And that, you know, that's people's nest eggs that they've been... Yeah. <laughs> It's, it certainly is. It's, uh, it, it's kind of shocking. They, it's, it's that lady, and then they're investigating five other people uh, as well. So it's the AFP and uh, ASIC. Uh, all, that's under the guise of the uh, Serious Financial Crime um, Task Force. But um, yeah, look, it, it seems like what she's done is basically done identity makeovers. So kind of done that thing where she's obviously found PII on people and built out these fraudulent identities and then created bank accounts for those people. And then pull the funds overseas through basically the jewellery markets as a way to kind of launder the money out of Australia. So yeah. that's a, a significant amount of jewellery. A, a lot of Tiffany stuff and uh, bracelets out there being bought by, by people who are doing cybercrime. Wow. It's a lot of, you look like Mr. T coming through the airport yeah. potentially. <laughs> you certainly would. It's an easy way to yeah, spot the attackers these days if they're wearing lots of jewellery, hey? <laughs> um, so I guess superannuation accounts in Australia, typically we've not seen this kind of activity before. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely uh, one of the things we're seeing um, in terms of cybersecurity attacks. You know, finance is an obvious target. And when you think about the amount of funds that are sitting in super funds, stockbroking funds, like it sort of makes sense actually uh, as a target. Um, so I, like I suspect given her success so far, um, we potentially will see more of this. I mean, the, the reality is that these the firms that were involved, and they're some of the bigger names, they have added new cybersecurity measures. So potentially this won't be as easy the next time around. Yes. But as you and, and I well know, it's a, a whack-a-mole. So yeah. you know, they might have had these new security measures added, guaranteed somebody will figure out a new way, a uh, new approach to do something similar, potentially for larger, larger amounts of money. So, yep. yeah, so uh, watch this space. And I guess typically superannuation funds, they're not always, they're not the first uh, bunch of companies that you think of 
at the forefront of technology or cybersecurity technology? Or am I wrong there? I guess my view, I've seen a lot of sort of superannuation funds. They've had their monthly newsletter that goes out. They've had this big bucket of money that they've, they've had to manage from various means. Uh, a number of them have been slow to introduce online um, login um, portals for their members. Uh, you know, they've traditionally done everything through the mail. Um, you know, now they really have to, you know, get on that forefront of cybersecurity mm. because they've they've accrued such large balances uh, of members, uh, um, yeah, money that it needs to be protected. And it's sort of this sort of shadow, not quite shadow banking, but yeah, it's a whole different part of the financial service industry. Look, I, I think it's it's not just super. Um, if you look at some of the back end systems in many of the financial organizations, they're running on old school, school mainframes. Um, they've got a huge amount of technical debt, and when it comes time to upgrade that or update that, quite often the short-term amount of money that would have to be spent to get that to a point where the average CISO today would feel okay about all the systems, uh, it's a huge amount of money. Um, there's a massive amount of technical debt that exists in, I would say, a lot of these companies, um, not just super, but you know, the, the big four banks had uh, a lot of the same issues. Yep. Running on those... Um, those legacy systems, I mean, you see it often um, when you go to renew your driver's license or if you get a sneak peek at the screen behind the teller, um, they're sitting on a Mac, but actually when you look at the screen, what's on the screen is this old school text-based interface. Mm. Um, I was in a fairly large health fund organization only yesterday getting yep. something, and um, the guy said, yeah, look, I can print you a letter to, to state what I was looking for, and I could see the screen, and it honestly looked like something from the 80s. So, you know, you can imagine how much of that exists out there yeah. and um, the kind of issues that it causes. Like Equinix was the perfect example. Yep. You know, everyone kind of had a go. Uh, and I'm not saying that there wasn't fault there. Um, but if you look at the, the systems that were in place, a lot of organizations out there would have very similar frameworks in place and would be probably susceptible to those same threats because the tentacles of those legacy systems are sitting there. The cost of the business to undo them um, and kind of retrofit modern approaches, it's just too big quite mm. often. So instead of that, they kick it down the road and then you see stuff like this happen. Yeah. Certainly my car insurance company, every time I call them up, they apologize because their computers are running so slow. Mm. Um, I thought five years ago, uh, five years later, that would still not be the case, but it seems to be. It, it's that and the unusually high volume of calls that they're oh, always yes. experiencing. So <laughs> it's quite bizarre, yeah. At least... Um, <laughs> My call may be used for, for training purposes. Mm. That's always helpful. And you know what they might do? They might actually record your voice. Ah, yeah. they may. Speaking of uh, voices being recorded, uh, we've got a story around deep fake AI um, being used to generate a CEO's voice um, yeah. and used against them. I love this story. This just it tickles my fancy uh, in, in so many ways. So this is a CEO out of a UK energy company, and he got a air quotes phone call from his boss, um, and that was uh, a guy who worked out of a German uh, parent company for them. But it wasn't really the uh, the boss. It was actually a deep fake of the uh, that person's voice. So they had used AI and kind of pieced together the. Um, the ability to do this kind of fake phone call into the CEO and manage to get a substantial amount of money transferred into, uh, first of all, a Hungarian supplier and then on to Mexico. And um, so the reason I love this story is because it probably points to where things are going to go. Mm. Um, you know, you think about deep faking of voices, and I think there was a, a Joe Rogan deep fake happened some time ago. Yeah. 
So t- tell me what exactly is a deep fake yeah. for the listeners so, out there? It's, it's the, the situation where you can record uh, parts of somebody's voice. And if you think of the average senior exec, they're probably out speaking at events. Uh, there's a tendency towards them being in some way public these days. So it's not hard to go and grab their voices from public forums. You know, you go to YouTube and you'll probably find that person's voice somewhere. And then deepfaking is using AI to then essentially create a simulated version of them, but you can feed that voice anything. So you can make... The, in this case, the the um, the boss in that German parent company say whatever you want them to say. So if you don't have good processes in place from a security perspective, you can make a phone call and say, "Hey, we need this money transferred to this supplier." And then essentially, it's social engineering, but a fairly high high level and advanced version of social engineering. But it's sort of the same thing. Um, scary technology, and we'll probably get to the point where you'll see that in deep faking of videos as well. Yes. Because um, that's probably where the the average person will go as well. Once I see them on a VC screen, cool. Like I know it's I know it's Gregor, but what what happens when we get to the point where there's enough video out there of Gregor yeah. that we can piece together a perfect version of you having this conversation with me, and I, as a human, don't necessarily even realize that it's it's not you. It's actually yeah. a, a fraudster. Look, it's a, it seems to be a great unknown for for us in the future. Um, certainly, I think from a video perspective, they only need um, between sort of 30 to 30 minutes to 60 minutes to have, yeah, to be able to do seamless deep fakes. Mm. Um, and I think that there was a Chinese app on the App Store that, uh, similar to the, the, the one of the face swap apps that was out recently, uh, and that only needed 10 seconds of video uh, of, of yourself, and then you could superimpose your, your face onto, you know, the latest uh, video clip of, a, of your favourite pop star and so on. Uh, so they, you know, they're forecasting within the next sort of 12 to 36 months that it, the deep fake video will be imperceptible to real video. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we get into this notion of what is real and and what's not, especially when you're communicating over these digital mediums. Yep, 100%. Um, and, you know, I know we chatted about this uh, previously, but one of the things that it says to me is that uh, I suppose there there needs to still be some reliance on the notion of people processing technology, and that seems really old school. Uh, we've got a lot of good tech out there. Um, we've got a lot of good people out there, but there is this notion of process being really important. And in this case... This is something where potentially a process that was in place where a phone call isn't enough, but there is some other verifi- you know, verifying process or thing that needs to happen before a transfer of that size yep. actually yeah, takes place. Wow. Is, is blood the next um, mechanism for two-factor th- <laughs> two authentication? I, I really hope not. I'm okay with maybe thumbprints and, and iris scanning, but I, yeah, I don't yep. have to have those finger pluck, pricked. Pluck a hair out of your head? Yeah. Who knows? We'll all be walking around bald because we're we're authenticating. <laughs> You've only got so many authentication yeah. keys in your lifetime. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, up next, uh, we've seen a hack on the pay ID uh, system within Australia. We have, yeah. This is the uh, the MyKey system. Um, uh, sorry, you know the the pay ID system um, where they. Yeah, there was a leak of the phone numbers, the BSBs and the account numbers for, I think it was about 10,000 customers for the big four banks. So, you know, if you're with any of the big four banks, you could have been part of this, although you would have been notified. Um, Look, to me, this points to really an issue that we have these days in terms of the the storage of data that seems to be innocuous in and of itself. So something like a phone number, you think, "Eh, is that really a big deal? becomes a big deal if it's going to be used for something like a pay ID bank transfer. So 
um, if you think about the, the data that you might store with lots of other platforms, so not just your banking, but other places, that on its own is fine. So an example that's very obvious is something like Facebook, where people include their date of birth. Yeah. People do that on LinkedIn and actually make that public. How often is your date of birth one of the verifying pieces of information that's asked for when you call up to prove that you're Gregor? Yeah. All the time, right? Uh, likewise with your, you know, your pet's name, the city you grew up in. That stuff all getting stored on, on platforms. In this case, is a fairly you know, structured format and database. Um, but where you'll see this pop up is use in other attacks. And um, look, one of the examples, it, it's sort of peripherally related, only in, in terms of that it's a social engineering attack. And um, in this PID one, they were sending uh, phishing SMSs to look for further information. But um, you might have heard the sextortion emails that went around a little while ago where they were using the treasure trove of call it, you know, owned credentials that are out there from your previous breaches that have happened around the world. And they would include one of your old passwords to prove that they really had a webcam that was yes. turned on and, you know, might have seen you do something that the rest of the world isn't, um, that you might not want the rest of the world to, to kind of know about. Um, perfect blackmail, perfect social engineering. It's a similar kind of thing. So with this SMS, if they, um, they have that, uh, the phone number, that information, and they can use that information to then say, look, we already know this piece of information around you. That sort of proves that we are fill in the blank for your bank. Now tell us, you know, your PIN number, reset your password, whatever it might be, and and away they go. Um, to me, look, it points to a bunch of different things. It points to the the requirements uh, for good regula uh, regulatory um, le legislation to be in place yes. to, to kind of push for secure storage and maintenance of this stuff. I think it points to how important even innocuous data can be uh, in terms of it being stored and then potentially used by attackers down the line. And I'll be honest, and, and Gregor, you know me, I'm not huge in terms of trust when it comes to third-party platforms. Um, one of the things I would like to see is that you know our Australian citizens and, and New Zealand and people in this region just being a little bit less trusting of, and it sounds horrible, but of everything. So if they get an SMS that they... They double check that. Um, if there is an issue, they they call the phone number for their bank that's on the bank's website. They don't take the one that's in an SMS message that they always refer back to, call it the source of truth, which in this day and age is, is generally the the bank, the company, the platform's website and use that as their way to talk to an account representative to figure out the problem with the bank directly, not clicking on a link within an SMS or doing anything that's ever asked of you within an email, for example, or within an SMS. Yes. Look, it's it's very challenging for those who aren't that technically adept to do those double spot those spot checks um, and always yeah know which number to call and to revert to you know it is that changing behaviour um, broadly across the whole community. Hundred um, percent. It's it's great. I guess you know for companies you know we can have in place different things to help with that sort of security training. Whereas for the yeah the normal mum and dad. Um, it's, it's, it's a real challenge and, you know, also what their kids are clicking on mm -hmm. and just, um, you know, calling straight through to. 100%. Yeah. Uh, my parents worry me. Like my dad books a lot of travel online and I'm just waiting for that phone call. You know, that, that horrible phone call, which is like, yeah, our, our credit cards are smashed and, um, you know, these horrible things have happened because he's whatever, he's in his 70s now and yep. he's not what we would call a digital native, but yes. he uses the internet to do yeah. the stuff of life, which is what many people do these days. So... Um, yeah, that, that's always been my worry is just the wider population and the, the 
the fairly easy social engineering that can happen to have horrible results. Yes. Okay, next up we have a story around um, Victoria's uh, Department of Transport. They actually, um, they breached the data privacy laws. Um, now, they thought they were doing this um, the right way. Uh, the, the data that they shared had been um, anonymised uh, and they shared it with the Department of Premier and Cabinet uh, who were running a like a hackathon but for data, uh, so a data-thon. Um, and as part of this, the data set that there was given across, which was... Um, Mikey travel records for uh, 15 million travellers, um, it actually breached our data laws. So tell me more about that, Gar. Yeah, sort of an interesting one to me uh, for so many different reasons where look, the notion of data sets being useful uh, for things like research is valid in my opinion. So the, the notion that you, for example, have demographic information, something that might come for a census, for example, and then use that as a way to analyze trends in terms of what happens to plus 40s, in terms of uh, diseases or you know things that, that can happen in anyone's life. Really useful. Um, but the issue is when you get those data sets that are, air quotes, de-identified, quite often what you can do is identify them by correlating them with something else that isn't part of that data set. In this example... Uh, some of the researchers actually were able to use a tweet from one of the uh, the MPs. His name is Anthony Carbines, and um, they used that as a way to de-identify the data, cross correlate that with this kind of you know, like I say, air quotes, de-identified data set from MyKey, and basically identify that data set. They also talk about being able to look at co-travelers because they'll tap on at the same time, tap off, etc. So, you know, the the notion of de-identified data sets can be really, really useful for researchers for lots of very valid reasons. And then the danger lies in the bit where you can take that that sort of secondary piece of information or event and use that as a way to pull an identified uh, data set or set of data about a person or people from that, uh, from that set of records. The other example of this is the, it's fairly famous where in, in London, the black cab data, so the GPS data from the black cabs over in London, Similar thing. It was like, hey, let's like make this publicly available. It's a really interesting data set. Let's see what people can come up with from from this as a data set. So you're looking at things like uh, where are cabs most often traveling. Very similar to this um, Mikey travel. Um, you know, you can imagine it, it's useful in terms of maybe investing in new trains or you know those kind of broader high level uh, discussions and decisions. Um, so with the GPS data in the UK, what some clever person did was look at a paparazzi shot with a black cab in it, with the registration plate clearly visible as a celebrity got into this cab from a nightclub in, you know, somewhere in London, Stringfellows or, or wherever people go these days. I don't know. It's been a while for me. Um, but now all of a sudden you've got this GPS data. You've got a photo of a black cab with this person yes. and you've got the registration plate and away you go. Now this person can use that GPS data to figure out where that celebrity lives. That to me is pretty scary. Yeah, it's very scary. Uh, it seems to me we don't need many pieces of data uh, to identify someone or what they're doing. Um, you know, maybe only two or three items that would uh, are needed. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And and it's probably less than people think. Quite often, you know, you think um, you, you think you're reasonably anonymous out there, but often people will have stuff like their date of birth, for example, on, on things like Facebook or LinkedIn. Like what do people use when you you phone up for uh, validation? It tends to be your date of birth, right? You know, yeah. you mentioned that before. Yeah. Um, it, it's that stuff. So you know, you take this data set, you take a uh, in this case a tweet from the MP, 
or you take a photo from a, a paparazzi and away you go. You probably know that um, banks can use things like your keystrokes to basically map a signature to yes. who you are. So Gregor types at a certain speed and when he goes from a G to an I, there's a certain gap in between that. Quite often accidentally hits the O as well because it's right beside the I on the keyboard. And all of a sudden we've got a essentially like a biometric signature from you based on your typing. So you can take something like that and then correlate it with something else and then use that for kind of yeah, tracking or de-identifying data. Okay. Are some of these, you know, advanced AI, you know, cybersecurity platforms, are they, you know, amalgamating some of those data inputs into when they're seeing anomalies on networks? Um, you, you'll certainly see, I think, AI play more and more of a role in this type of stuff. Um, they can detect things that humans can't. Um, and that, like the keystroke example is a perfect one. Like realistically, if I sat down and watched you type, I'm never going to be able to take you out of the picture and then see the keys being tapped and kind of go, that's Gregor, that's how Gregor taps. But if you introduce uh, machine learning into that situation, all of a sudden that's where you can build that picture and use that as a way to kind of to figure out the kind of the the identifying signature of somebody like a, a human like Gregor. Okay. Um, I, I do see a future for cybersecurity um, dogs potentially in this um, identify, identification um, realm, uh, being able to validate who the users are indeed on different ends uh, of the line because they, everyone has a unique smell um, and dogs, you know, or a heartbeat, uh, they can, could potentially be used. You know, if we do have dogs used in the force already... Why not? Is it so one woof is good, two woofs bad? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah. Type in the passcode or the puppy gets it. Yeah. Wow, that's a fairly sinister idea. <laughs> um, it, look, in terms of, you know, these uh, de-identified data sets, you know, for a, a hackathon example, you know, there are a lot of um, data sets out there on the internet um, for for use for, you know, people to just have a play around in Tableau or um, different, uh, you know, mass data platforms, um, you know, is it actually a good idea for some of these companies, especially, you know, uh, state organisations to be supplying these data sets? Uh, is, you know, <laughs> is it a good idea to do that or not? Uh, look, it's, it's probably a personal opinion. Um, I think it's useful for society in so many ways that I think once it's controlled and if there is a good job done of the kind of uh, anonymizing of data, and funnily enough, they can use things like ML to do that as well. So there's a force for good in machine learning, uh, or sorry, AI. Um, so you can you can do that. And look, my, my personal take would be that the benefits to society for making those data sets available sometimes is kind of outweighs the potential privacy issues. But it comes back to like good practice, yeah, um, and you know being tied in terms of controlling the data yeah. and being smart about could it be de-identified? Yeah. You know, asking those cynical questions. If an MP tweet you know tweets his location. Can we then use that to figure out his travel um, using the Mikey data yeah. in this example? Um, so what should have the um, Department of Transport done in this scenario? Um, you know, in terms of if, is there, should have they just not shared this data at all for this um, data-thon? Uh, is there a way to de-anonymise the data to a greater extent? So you've only, you, perhaps you're using a sample size of only 5% of that data rather than the complete travel record. So you just got this little sample size uh, or you're still running into some, some of the challenges same challenges there like so i'm, I'm gonna say i'm not a data scientist so this is uh, me kind of guessing in many ways but i i suspect what would happen is that the value of the data may veer away from being useful yep. if you kind of go too far along the lines of kind of um, uh, anonymizing or, or de-identifying it um 
I believe there are some good algorithms out there to do that and to do a good job of it. So it probably comes down to the quality of uh, the data scientists that are working to de-identify the, um, the information. Mimecast is a cybersecurity provider that helps thousands of organizations worldwide make email safer, restore trust, and bolster cyber resilience. Mimecast's cloud suite enables organizations to implement a comprehensive cyber resilience strategy, from email and web security, archive and data protection, to awareness training, uptime assurance, and more. Mimecast helps organizations stand strong in the face of cyber attacks, human error, and technical failure. Go to mimecast.com slash demo to book a personal demonstration with one of our team members today, and you'll find out why more than 30,000 companies rely on Mimecast for cyber resilience. Next up, we've got Mitch Owens from Gilbert and Tobin uh, chatting with Gar around um, what it's like to be a CTO for a law firm. So, Mitch, uh, lovely to see you today, and thanks for, for having us in to, to have a chat. Um, can we start by just kind of covering off what your kind of role is here at uh, Gilbert & Tobin? Yeah, so here at Gilbert & Tobin, I'm uh, the Chief Technology Officer, so basically responsible for all of technology. Um, the way the structure of uh, the leadership team works here is I report into the COO, so I'm overall responsibility for technology. We don't have a CIO, um, and then sort of under me, you know, you've got your standard sort of Technology, technology operations areas like, you know, service desk, uh, security, you know, infrastructure, training, application support. Yep. So kind of everything. Yep. Yeah. Good times. All and sundry. Yeah. And, and sort of how long have you been specialised um, in cybersecurity? What kind of time uh, frames? It, that's an interesting question, that one. So I think, you mean, uh, everyone's a generalist when it comes to cybersecurity if you work in technology these days. Uh, I've sort of been in technology as an industry um, all my life, pretty much, so 25 years, uh, sort of coming into this role and taking over the CTR role uh, over the last uh, three to four years. Um, there's been a big focus on on cyber, um, and that's a number of reasons. Um, obviously, with a law firm, you know, you're you're holding a lot of data, um, and also being responsible for that so you've got to change how you you approach stuff so it no longer is it anymore just about systems and defenses mm. it's about people as well so mm. so and with 25 years in the game i'm guessing you've seen a lot of changes over that time what? yeah look i'd say the big change um uh, i see is around how people use technology so they want more of a consumerized sort of uh, feed of technology so yeah. previously you know organizations i worked for where it's you know, all banks, you've got your desktop, everything's locked down, you can't do anything, there's an image, and now it's, you know, people are on laptops, you know, mobile phones, iPads, they want to be able to consume their data, whether it be a work device or a personal device, and how do you separate that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so there has been a, a big change in how people consume technology, and I think that's driven a lot to the technology advancements in cyber. Yeah, definitely. Um, and do you see there's a bit of a tension sometimes when we talk to people between that kind of... Uh, people's expectations to bring their own devices, spin up their own applications, you know, functional areas within a business kind of gone off and doing their own thing? Yeah, look, I, I think that is a challenge, I think. But the, the, the view I take that if, if I become a roadblock to people wanting to consume technology in different ways, um, it, it's going to make, you know, life hard and people avoid, you know, bringing technology into that discussion. So I'm sort of fairly open from that perspective. I like to sort of work with people and say, all right, well, what, what do you want to do? Let us help you provide a solution. Um, and that's the approach we take here. Yep. And I'm, I'm guessing that wins you some uh, some friends in the business if you're um, kind of not yeah, a roadblock. Look, look, it is. And, you know, I mean, like, you know, sort of some of the products that I've used, you know, I mean, 
we've sort of been the first consumers of those products in Australia or Asia uh, at the time. You know, mm. I mean, because I see them, I think they're really good. Yep. And let's have a go at them. You know, yep. the way you uh, buy technology now is no longer are you locked into three-year agreements. You can, you know, per person per month type thing. So yep. it makes it very easy to uh, try and fail. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you kind of feel that maybe raises the game for the vendors, given that you can walk away fairly easily, especially with the SaaS-type models? Do you feel like they've upped their game to kind of win your business every year? Yeah, so there's been a massive change in probably, you know, the account executive sort of piece around that. They now are trying to partner with you more than just yes. being pure sales. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot more access into the technology people behind the scenes, which is where we really need to be because you've got a SaaS offering, we've got another SaaS offering, we need them to talk together. Yep. So we, we really need products to talk to each other as opposed to it's all in-house and we're building our own solutions. Yeah, I understand. So, yeah, so we've seen a lot of change there. So you raise an interesting point because uh, the integration and the idea of that security fabrics, reference architecture, you know, whatever yep. kind of term you want to use, we're definitely seeing in the last probably uh, 12 to 18 months, yep. more and more uh, organizations are looking at that as a way to uplift their kind of security posture. Do you guys have a program in place to, to kind of integrate point solutions from a security perspective? Yeah, look, we do. So do you mean like what we, you know, ultimately, you know, everyone in the back end has got the same platform. You know, mm-hmm. anything we bring in now that's got any sort of user behaviour out it has to sort of log in. Uh, log into that um, you know all our other platforms around security uh, awareness and there's a thousand out there now mm. um, but you know we sort of always make sure that when we're bringing something in it's working with our existing estate we don't want to rip it all to pieces yep. um, and there is a big focus on those integration points uh, whether it just be cyber or just general technology consumption yep definitely get that so for you do you would you see kind of cyber security as being a more critical issue for your business compared to others uh Oh, look, I think any business that doesn't have cyber, probably in the top one or two priorities, either in the technology team or as a business as a whole, is probably looking at the wrong things. Uh, Definitely at GNT, it it is a very big thing that we focus on, and we focus on it for a couple of reasons. Um, We work with a lot of clients that are in regulated environments, so therefore, you know, when they entrust us with their data, we have to make sure that we are maintaining it and protecting it to their data standards. So that means sort of we're lifting ourselves up from just being like a law firm, you know, it's almost like mini bank security. Yep. Um, yeah, so that sort of has a big focus. And then also now that we are a law firm, we work on a lot of, you know, corporate matters. There's a lot, a lot of market-sensitive material and I think, you know, it's been recognised for many years that uh, law firms are a critical part of the supply chain mm-hmm. and it becomes um, working with these, with these clients. You've got to protect your data, and like you know, it's the old dit no data is the new oil. Yeah, do you mean that's where it's going? Yep. So. Yeah, definitely hear that all the time. So, in in terms of practical um, approaches, or what what are you doing differently now, given the kind of regulatory and compliance pressures that are increasing? Oh, look, I think it's 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 meant everyone's got to step up their game. Yep. Um, and you know, I mean, as a law firm, I've been on a a, a path. Uh, to sort of improving our sort of environment for a long time. Sort of in the six years I've been here and definitely the last four, um, and I think all law firms are doing that and I think everyone's doing that generally. Um, But to become uh, more... uh, So when a client gives us data, they're comfortable that, you know, we are applying the controls around it Mm -hmm. that they would do in their own business. So we sort of become an extension of their business as opposed to 
they've got a bit of a risk when they send something out the door, if you know what I mean. So. Yeah, definitely get that. Uh, on the other side of that, because we, we hear supply chain fraud and, and, yeah. and you know the, the notion of uh, your reliance on the people that you work with and yep. partner with, yep. uh, is that something that keeps you awake at night? Um, uh, how do you deal with that? Yeah, look, you mean... It, it, it always is. You can. You, you, you're only as good as your weakest link. Yep. You know what I mean. So, and you know, from a from a technology perspective, um, we spend a lot of time, you know, securing defences and making sure data's, you know, protected on devices where it is and who's using it. Um, do you mean there's always and every business has got it is insider threat. You know what I mean. That's yep. probably the thing that um, keeps me sort of awake at night. You know, the insider th- threat is probably one, and then obviously you know there's some other stuff around the state sponsored type stuff, especially if you're working on market sensitive information. Hmm. Why go to the bank when you can go to the law firm uh, to to get that sort of information? So there's sort of things that sort of keep me up at night and I work sort of heavily with my team and you know sort of the, the securities teams at some of our clients as well to make sure that we're meeting their obligations yep yeah good to hear um, in, in terms of the kind of what your employees direct reports I suppose and, and then the wider organisation how do you how do you see them and how do they kind of fare with call it cyber awareness or the security awareness and, and you know where yeah, are they at uh, and look uh, it is everyone's responsibility security awareness in a business these days and you know, I mean we as a business run mandatory annual uh, cyber awareness training or security yep. awareness training covering not just you know technology cyber but also physical yep. um, and we sort of run a lot of testing uh, throughout the year as well um, whether it be penetration testing you know monthly annually and things like that uh, and then we also do ongoing uh, regular security awareness training with users on a monthly basis as well, just to, to give them snippets and keep it at the forefront of their minds, um, you know, and that's sort of been quite well received. We're sort of, uh, you know, we get a lot of users now uh, who are raising stuff because they think, oh, is this something that's a little bit funky that I need to sort of escalate? And, you know, a lot of the times it's a false positive, but we appreciate yep. that now thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. With false positives, one of the things we hear quite a lot is uh, security teams, SOC analysts, spend a lot of time chasing smoke. You know, there's yep. nothing really there. Yep. Um, is that a problem for you guys? What are, you, what are your thoughts and good uh, ways to... Yeah, look, do you mean, it, it is. Like, I think there are, you know, definitely a lot of false positives around um, this sort of part of the technology world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's a focus area uh, for our business um, purely because... If you sort of dismiss the false positives and say everything's a false positive, I'm only going to randomly check. There's only going to be one positive positive uh, breach or whatever to get through, and as a business, your reputation's gone. So, yep. although false positives might be seen to be burning resources, time, and money, they're there for a reason. Uh, mm. So, whether that's be training the uh, training the staff or training the the SOC analysts to to be aware of. What's happening, and they can probably process it a bit quicker. Yep. Um, but then they can recognise, you know, the actual threats a lot faster because they sort of have been on this sort of trading path so around the false positive. So I look at it that way. Yep. Yeah, understood. Um, with the employees, just to kind of circle back onto the user awareness and the education part of things, um, do you, do you do anything different? that you could sort of compare it to other organisations in terms of the education? Um, yeah, look, so, you know, we've recently launched this fantastic product called Atata Security okay. Awareness Training. Um, and, it, look, it's been really well received because cyber and security training, by nature, is pretty boring. Everyone it gets is, yeah. bored of it. And, and the thing we've sort of found with, with some of these training modules, you know, they're very Seinfeld-esque. So, yep. you know, they're... 
they, they sort of make a little bit of a joke uh, about the topic, but it, it gets people thinking and they go, actually, I enjoy watching these videos and they're quite funny, but uh, just the way it's been delivered. So, do you mean, as a result of, you know, that, I think we've been running for about five months now uh, and sort of like the uplift in, you know, people's performance and how they're sort of recognising sort of some threats, whether they be false positives or what, has improved sort of, you know, dramatically. So Yeah, that's great to hear. Where do you go about getting information? Obviously, you've got a fairly complex job, and one of the things we hear in this industry is that there is an avalanche of information every day. Yep. There's, there's so much stuff happening in this industry. It's probably must be one of the fastest moving in the world. Yep. Uh, where do you go to, to figure out what's important? Oh, look, I read a lot of you know specific newsletters um, that um, sort of delivered to my inbox each day, and I'll sort of just pick the topics I like. Uh, I speak to a lot of people as well, so... You know, within within legal, there's a good fraternity of legal CIOs, and we sort of communicate. You know, a couple of times a week, actually, even just on emails about certain yep. things. And you know, over over the weekend, actually, there was one around a sexploitation scam. Right. And Monday morning, there's an email sort of in the inbox, and everyone's going, "All right, what happened here? Have you been hit with it? What are you doing?" And things like that. So we sort of you know keep each other on up to date on sort of what's happening within our thing. So you know, it sort of helps them. Uh, as well, I also have got a couple of trusted vendors that I use um, and integrators as well that, you know, I spend a lot of time sort of talking to and sort of, you know, going back to, you know, as you said, the security fabric and things like that. So asking questions about, all right, if we want to go down this path, how's that going to sort of fit in here? So, yep. you mean, you've got to, you can't do everything in-house these days because there's so much. Um, so you've got to sort of rely on some trusted people to sort of, get you down that path and you know that's not something you're just going to pick up the phone and speak to a vendor and say hey give us something and it fixes it you've sort of got to go down that you know get in the trenches with them and and do a bit of stuff with them and you get the value out of it yep do you feel like it's become more uh, collaborative over the last 25 years and, and sort of more i mean i kind of think back and it felt to me that businesses were often siloed and they didn't yep. communicate about this stuff and security wasn't even a thing really do you feel like you almost have to have your approach where you've got peers in other organisations? And yeah, I think I think so. Like so, probably you know, early on, um, it was very much like that. So if something happens in the business, it was very quiet, mm. um, and you mean nothing got published, or you know, you didn't make any awareness of it because you didn't want that sort of negative connotation. Uh, and like even the communication we're having now, and sort of some of the stuff we talk about, it's not that there's something happening malicious within the business, but, mm-hmm. hey, it's a bit of spam or phishing or, yep. you know, just a bulk email type uh, uh, threat. And, you know, we sort of share that sort of information sort of as a group just to, you know, keep everyone aware of it. You know, then we can sort of work together with some of our vendors and say, all right, well, this happened. We're sort of all using uh, vendor A. What can we do to protect ourselves sort of next time? So it, it is quite uh, good in that perspective because then you sort of get volume in numbers, if, if you know what I mean. I get you. So yep. there is that collaboration around that. Um, and, you know, like, and for example, you know, we've seen a, a couple of, uh, you know, big breaches in 2018 with, you know, WannaCry and Crypto Locker and that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, how people sort of band together when that sort of happened, you know, mm. there was someone hit and it's like, all right, can we help you? What do you need? And you yep. know, people sort of just actually trying to help other businesses sort of recover and survive from something. So, I thought that worked quite well. So. Yeah, and, and it's sort of related to that, but the the notion of when things go wrong, I, I be keen to get your thoughts on whether the the perception of when things go wrong. I think yep. there used to be a little bit of finger pointing, and yep. you know, oh look at them, they messed up. Yeah, I feel like that's starting to change. Where yep. I think we all kind of realize it could be any of us. 
Very much so. And, like, I mean, there are that many attack vectors these days and, you know, just doing the simple things right, you know, should do do a level of protection to a point for you. Um, but, you know, you, you are correct. So when things go wrong where it used to be, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, but now, like, everyone goes, all right, what's happening over there? Are we protected over here? Yep. And, you know, you sort of... It's constant vigilance then and you're sort of upping the game and, you know, that sort of stuff. And, you know, you don't want to be... You don't want to be the front page of a newspaper if something happened to you here and no-one does. So there's no uh, finger-pointing, I don't think, anymore because, you know, it's the threats are real. Yep. Yeah, understood. And, and do you guys do cyber insurance or what, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know sort of it, there's some pros and cons there. Yeah, look, I think... Um, so, yeah, as a firm, we do have mm. cyber insurance policies. Um, we've been very lucky to date that we've never had to plan on Touchwood. Yep. Um, but they're there for a reason, right? So, you know, in the event that there is a cyber attack, um, the costs to recover mm. and investigate that can be significant. Yep. Um, you know, whether it be reputational damage to the business, whether it's actually just recovering the technology um, to an operational point and all that sort of stuff. So that's sort of the reason that we have that and most business would have that as well. Um, and once again, it, it is an insurance policy. So do you mean to, to sort of maintain that insurance policy, you just can't walk out the street and get it. Yep. You know, you've got to actually have a level of, you know, um, security and, you know, process and, and people around it to sort of say, all right, well, you're an acceptable risk to give you an insurance policy. So yep. the fact you get it, means you're doing something anyway because, you know, if you're a real risk, your insurance policy doesn't matter how much they're going to um, charge you for it. If you get hit with it, it's going to cost them tenfold. So they, they're not going to be giving them out to everyone. It's not like a comprehensive car insurance policy. Yeah, can't uh, apply online. Yeah, There's a little bit yeah, more to it than yeah. that. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the cyber insurance, do you see that showing up in contracts and, and becoming a requirement from for the organisations that you're working with? Um, I haven't I haven't seen that in, in the pieces that I sort of get involved with around um, panel tenders and things like that. Mm. Um, but what I'm increasingly seeing is from an organisational perspective is that they're wanting, you know, uh, certifications, you know, ISO yep. 27001, yep. ISMS, uh, SSAE, SOC 2s and things like that. So I think, you know, at the moment, I think eventually it will become a standard that you've got to have a cyber insurance. I think that at the moment now... Um, you know, clients are trying to sort of push on you a certification because then they know if you've got this certification it's externally audited mm. on, on an annual basis you're running a level of you know uh, process procedure and platform um, to protect your data so that I think that's the first sort of step of that but I can definitely see it down the track yep and, and what conferences do you go to uh, and then probably a second part of that question, why, why do you choose those particular conferences? Yeah, so I've just come back from one in August. I went to Iltacon, uh, in it was in Florida this year, so that's the International Legal uh, Technology Association Conference. Um, that's uh, like, it's Disneyland um, yep. for, you know, legal tech people. Um, and funnily enough, it was at Disneyland in Florida. Right, um, good, good times. Good times. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I go to that. Uh, I've been that for the la- uh, this year and last year, um, but I put that on my agenda to go annually as well because you pick up a lot. It's just around user, it's around education, it's around networking with your peers, it's around looking at new products coming out from vendors mm. and just general discussions around uh, everything and anything, whether it be security, just general legal technology and and uh, other stuff. Um, I also try to get to Law Tech uh, every year, which is an Australian one um, uh, hosted by Chile IQ. Um, that's currently on at the moment, but I can't get there uh, this year. Um, and in general, um, a lot of our vendors will run 
specific sort of uh, whether it be product updates or things like that. So um, I'll get to those ones that I think are, you know, fitting. So like I I have probably five or six core products in my cyber yep. uh, arsenal, as I call it, and I'll make sure that I, I'm across them, you know. And I'm I'm very into the detail of that sort of uh, stuff, probably more so than a normal CIO or CTO. I sort of know how they operate, what they do, and how to, how to work with them because it is such a big piece of, what my team have to do and be, be responsible for. Yep. yep. And, and what are your objectives so this financial year? Um, so, look, do you mean uh, this this year we've we've been a big part just in general at Gilbert and Tobin around change. So we've changed a lot of the, the back-end platforms that, you know, technology users use. And so this year for me is all around user adoption. So, you know, just mm-hmm. sort of betting down. Um, sort of some of the platforms we've got, getting users using them better. Um, there, there is some other stuff where we're looking around certifications around ISO yep. uh, ourselves um, and, you know, just having a look at um, probably trying to sort of do a little bit more around um, data and data security uh, and data analytics as well. So, And with respect to the data security, it's, you know, making it accessible but still being secure and how do we do that and, you know, ownership of data where it is and if, mm-hmm. you know, someone leaves an organisation, making sure that that's all captured. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's control but access. So, Mitch, if you had a magic wand uh, or even a genie, uh, what's the, the one wish you'd make for cyber security? Uh, look, I sort of mentioned earlier probably about data being the new oil and for me it's all around uh, security of data. Uh, one thing I would love to be able to do is what I'd call time bomb data. So nice. you mean you email it out, it goes here, it goes there, right? And it's it's in the right hands at the right time. But for some reason, you need to sort of uh, re- revoke access to that. So, you know, it's a digital rights management, you know, and I'd call it digital rights management off-network. Yep. So, do you mean it's gone to client, you're right, expiry date, bang, they can't, they can't open it, they can't do anything with it. Um, I think, you know... That would be what I'd call the panacea or utopia. Yep. That'd be that'd make life a lot easier for everyone because yep. do you mean if data got into the wrong hands, you could sort of force that mechanism and sort of you're back to where you need to be. Yep. And do you feel that cybersecurity is seen differently these days by kind of exco's uh, exec leadership teams? Yeah, look, I definitely do. So there's a lot of focus uh, within a lot of organisations, and specifically ours, um, from the board level because um, yep. now you know with changes of you know, director liability and things like that with right. running a business, uh, they're personally liable. So, do you mean, um, and cyber is a, a, a significant threat to uh, a lot of businesses, uh, so therefore they've got to push down, you know, protections from their, from the board level on that sort of executive leadership. So, you know, where it was probably uh, a hard to try and get some of this sort of stuff through maybe even five years ago, uh, now that if you've got a business case and it's valid and, you know, it's there to protect the business... Uh, it gets, you know, pretty good board oversight. So, yeah. so you feel like it's made your planning easier. You've got a louder voice. Oh, very, very much so. Yeah. Do you mean like you mean like with everything you do? There's always room for improvement with everything. Um, but you know, with this sort of stuff that we talk about around cyber specifically, um, you know, just the general protection to the firm. You know, and sometimes you know, and it's not where I really want to be, but you've got to put something in uh, a control in place that actually limits someone's. Um, ability to be able to do something how they previously did it, uh, so it changes process and how people function. Um, so previously, where the process and people function might have won over mm. because it was too intrusive, now it's oh well, you're just going to, have to get used to the new way of working. Yep. Yeah, the risk is too high. Yeah. 
Um, is there one important thing that as a cybersecurity leader that you do every day, something that you could share? Um, yeah, look, I think it's awareness and visibility. So just sort of knowing what's going on. So, you know, I speak to my security team a lot. Um, I speak to my service desk uh, guys a lot as well. And just, you know, just understanding what's happening in the business. All right, what are the common issues that we're seeing today? And, you know, we do ready for business reports every morning. And, you know, out of my security guys, I get them to send me like a infographic or a visual graphic of, all right, last 24 hours, what, what is hitting our perimeter? What are we seeing? Um, then, you know, at the same time, I get them to sort of give me a, a top five extract out of our seam logs and things like that. Or right, what are the stuff that, you know, we've been dealing with in the last 24 hours? Um, so that sort of stuff is probably what I do on a daily basis. Yep, awesome. And, and you're well aware, obviously, the the skills shortage in cybersecurity, yeah. and it's something that as an industry we talk about a lot. Yeah. Um, how have you gone around far, um, not firing, hiring the yeah. right people? Um, so, look, there's a couple of things there, right? So we, with cybersecurity, uh, it's sort of like uh, Y2K, okay. Uh, you know, couldn't get enough IT people in general because, you know, we didn't know what's going to happen. Mm. Same sort of things happening now with security. And, you know, it is becoming an arms race because they can come work for a law firm or they can go work for an AWS or a Google or a, a bank that's got millions and billions of dollars budget in, in that security thing. Uh, so sort of on that sort of piece, a couple of things I do specifically. Um, I work closely with vendors, so I rely on my vendor network. Um, we do do some managed service as well. Um, and then internally with my people, I sort of pick um, internal, so people who know my business and look to train them up. Uh, because they've got potential and they can do the job and sort of invest the time and the money in the training of them, um, knowing that they feel like they're then getting an opportunity. So there's a little bit of a loyalty thing there so I can yep. keep them a bit longer. Um, that's sort of how I've had to do it. I haven't been able to go off the the onto the street and just hire a CISO type thing. So I've had to sort of, with a mix of everything, you know, mm-hmm. that's a bit of my role, that's a bit of my head of infrastructure role. Uh, together we do that CISO function and then we've got people under us that sort of feed into that as well. So. Yeah. What are your thoughts in terms of uh, when you've got people in the security team, the the debate between experience or qualification? So if somebody goes out and gets yeah. a CISP qualification versus they've, you know, in the trenches experience or some combination of those, like what do you think? Oh, look, so I, I think... I think qualifications are good in that they verify your experience. So you're not going to be able to get a qualification, really, unless you've had some experience. And, you know, you're sort of starting out your journey, whether it be university, um, you know, you're going to come out with a degree of some sort, but then when you get into the business, you're going to say, all right, well, I want to go into security, I need a CISSP or whatever it is. Mm. Um, So you're sort of going to be doing both at the same time. You'd be very unlikely to find someone with a qualification that has got no experience. But that Mm. being said... I, I preference experience over qualifications to, at a certain level because you want people who know how they can function. You know, I, I don't micromanage. Yep. I give my team a, a broad remit of what our responsibilities are and how you do that, I don't mind. Yep. Um, but it's up to you to get it done. Um, and that's where that experience comes in handy because if they've got no experience, you spend a lot of time hand-holding and I don't have the time to hand-hold. Mitch, a couple of kind of quick questions then and, and these are less uh, serious I suppose in some ways um, really keen to just get some insights into you know your what you are outside of uh, your role um, so just kind of wondering what do you do outside of work uh, outside of work uh, kept busy I've got three kids uh, with a wife you know the house the pool um, so I spend a lot of time with them you know ferrying kids around to sports and activities after school my wife does a lot of but I do the sort of weekend sports I sort of help manage um, a couple of football teams and things like that and then just generally catch up with friends and family um, sort of 
when I can. Awesome, awesome. Um, and what uh, what are you currently reading? So, current book I'm reading is The Subtle Art of Not Giving Up. Uh, it's great. So, you know, it just <laughs> it's it, everyone should read it. I think so. It's yeah. very funny. Is that is it Mark Manson? Is that the author? That's correct. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think it was on the New York bestseller list for a, uh, a while. He's got a, another one that I haven't got into yet, but it's along the same sort of lines as well. Right. So, yeah, I've seen it in the airports. It's yeah. the orange cover. Yeah, yeah that's the definitely one. have to get to that one. Um, what kind of music do you listen to? Uh, so, like, I listen to anything, really. I've got Spotify sort of on heavy rotation on the train trip to work. Uh, I usually put in, like, you know, the 2019 number one hits. Uh, I like a lot of Foo Fighters, mm. Australian rock, that sort of stuff. But, you know, in general, anything sort of... Uh, my middle son, Harry, he loves his music and dancing and things like that. So he's always got it going around in the house. You've mentioned sport a few times, and, and you manage a team, did you say? Yeah, yeah. So uh, my eldest guy, Cooper, he plays uh, rugby league, so I sort of managed his under-13s uh, league team this year. Uh, they've just finished the season. They went through the season as minor premiers but lost out in the grand final. So uh, it was a hard one for him to take, but you can't win everything. So Definitely not. Good and fun. Do you play yourself? Or do you... Uh, I do play a lot of old man sports myself. So I'm, uh, in the wintertime, I play over 35 soccer. So, yep. And then I've just started uh, coming into summer. Now we play summer soccer. So an over 35 summer soccer comp on a Wednesday night with a couple of mates. So, yeah, it's good. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mitch. I really do appreciate it. I think it's been a lovely conversation for me, so definitely just want to say yeah, a huge thanks to you. No worries. What a great interview with Mitch Owens from Gilbert and Tobin. Look, I found it really interesting. Um, you know, he had some great insights there in terms of, you know, how he can talk with the C-suite now uh, mm. in terms of cybersecurity and they have that greater understanding. Uh, the skills shortage for cybersecurity, that's always an interesting one. Uh, and especially when you're looking at the qualifications of, um, you know, those who work in cybersecurity versus their experience. Uh, so, you know, no matter how many different letters after your name uh, or university courses you've done, it doesn't, it, you know, you can't trade that in for time in the field and being able to identify those threats out there. I guess what really interested me about what Mitch had to say was around time bomb data. Uh, you know, having that data that you can revoke access to uh, or just have it literally destroy itself um, so it's no longer available. Uh, I, I think this is a excellent concept but I'm just not sure it's actually possible. I'm, I'm with Mitch. It would be amazing if it was um, and maybe someday there's a genie or a magic wand that actually lets it happen but um, oh, look I think the reality is with the proliferation of things like mobile phones pens you know if you want to go old school you know ultimately people can transcribe information they can take photos of things and um, I think that data control I've said this before, the only time I've ever seen it done very well or, or properly was in a, a call center uh, overseas where when you walked in, you basically had to sub give everything that wasn't organic to the security people. They ran you through a security detector or metal detector and and that was it. So you couldn't bring anything in. And even then, if you had a good memory, you're still going to be able to remember a credit card number or something important. So um, I'm with Mitch, but I think it would take a genie to actually make it happen. True. Uh, look, Snapchat certainly had a crack at it uh, with the way they share videos and them having uh, them only being time limited. I've never used Snapchat personally sure myself. Sure, you haven't. Uh, but you know, the app I understood. I understood it. Even at an OS level, it would stop screen recording, uh, being able to take screenshots when you're sharing a message. Uh, however, you know that can simply be circumvented by using another mobile phone to yeah. film it. Away you go. So yep. there's there's always a way to photocopy something at the end of the day. There is. That's pretty old school. <laughs> yeah, whether it's with an old school photocopier or you're just your memory, as you said, Gar. Yeah. 
Okay, that's the end of this episode for the Get Cyber Resilient show. This episode's music comes from the Melbourne artist Jeff Marnai and can be found on Spotify. If you work in IT or security and make your own music, we'd love to feature it on the next episode. So simply get in touch with us by emailing gcr at mimecast.com. If you enjoyed the Get Cyber Resilient show, head over to getcyberresilient.com, a new online destination for cyber professionals in Australia and New Zealand. We all know the constant battles and challenges of addressing cybersecurity. Getcyberresilient.com is a place that brings together the local cyber community to collectively problem solve through innovative solutions. Come with us on a journey to be more resilient to the challenges and risks that exist online. Point your favourite web browser to getcyberresilient.com.